Shionella, your source for music, mint, and tea. Wednesdays from 2 to 3 on WPFW 89.3 or online at WPFW.org. Welcome back to Shy One on Our Radio. This is Dr. Simon Fitzgerald, uh, the knife at the gunfight, trauma surgeon from Baltimore, and your guest host today. And we got a great show today with a follow-up interview with Anthony Fenton on updates on the Saudi military industrial complex, the International Defense Military Exposition in Abu Dhabi, and the ongoing war in Yemen. After that, we'll have an interview closer to home with Latrice Gant, one of the founding members of the Baltimore Ceasefire Movement. So stay tuned. Hello again from Canada. Thanks for joining us, Anthony Fenton. Uh, how are you doing? I'm doing all right, thanks. Uh, thanks for having me on again. Appreciate it. Uh, we're again on the air w, uh, PFW in Washington, D.C. with Shai Wanana Radio. And the last time you and I spoke, we were talking about the kind of Saudi military-industrial complex. Uh, and that happened to be not too long before the murder of Jamal Khashoggi made the whole Saudi military-industrial complex uh, so much more relevant. And then we found out after that that there was a, a Canadian uh, connection there. Isn't that right? Yeah, there were probably a couple of Canadian connections, but the one was uh, the friend of Khashoggi who had, who had been in pretty close contact with him, as we understand now, uh, in, the, in, the day, in the days like immediately prior to his uh, murder. Omar uh, Abdulaziz was uh, is a Saudi dissident who... Uh, basically took refuge in Canada and lives in Canada, in Montreal. He had been um, in discussions with Khashoggi, and uh, they'd been in discussions about forming a sort of dissident group in exile uh, in, in uh, an effort to agitate against and expose the uh, the Saudi royal family, in particular, you know, the Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, um, and they're in nefarious ways. And uh, then uh, it was discovered that... Uh, Abdulaziz's uh, cell phone was being tracked. The uh, University of Toronto linked uh, group called the Citizen Lab. They spent a lot of their time, devoted a lot of resources uh, investigating uh, this kind of new wave of cyber warfare and digital surveillance of uh, dissidents abroad. They uh, uncovered covered a lot about different companies, uh, some Canadian, such as one called NetSweeper, others uh, such as uh, the NSO group, I believe is linked uh, to to Israeli interests, uh, and a number of other companies that are specializing, like selling the software and technologies to uh, Middle East regimes such as Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates that enable them to 
basically hack into citizens' phones, monitor and surveil their online activities. And in this case, they uh, even did it uh, abroad. So they apparently targeted this uh, Canadian uh, Khashoggi, a friend of Khashoggi. Um, we don't know if any there was any direct connection between that and the, the murder, although it's, it's certainly an interesting coincidence that they were in communication, sort of subversive in the eyes of the Saudi royal family in the days up to Khashoggi's uh, being lured into the, the Saudi consulate in, uh, in in Turkey. And just to remind people, he was in the uh, consulate in Turkey in order to get paperwork to get married when he was abducted, murdered, and dismembered by a group of Saudis in the in the Saudi consulate. But it was uh, an Israeli uh, company that was had the software that the Saudis were using to hack those calls. Is that confirmed? Do we know that? I, I believe so. I wouldn't want to be quoted on that. I have to just look in detail in my notes here. But uh, yeah, the NSO group, I believe, is one. Or uh, Pegasus is another term, that another name that in connection with this. Yeah, and that's, you know, of course, one of the... Uh, you'd think it would, it would almost be, you know, 30 years ago maybe it would be an ironic thing, but I mean, we've seen a rapprochement between Israel uh, and an increasingly open one between uh, Israel, Saudi Arabia, and the United Arab Emirates uh, in recent years. And uh, speculation is a lot, that a lot of this is in, in connection with a sort of a uh, development of a sort of united front uh, with respect to Iran. So, you know, if, how, how better to, uh, to encircle Iran if uh, uh, the uh, Saudis were able to join forces with their one-time uh, arch-enemy uh, Israel, you know, supposedly, right? But this goes back a long ways, especially, you know, to the 1990s when basically Saudi Arabia accepted, you know, publicly accepted the existence of Israel and stopped. And that really was, for Canada, was a sticking point for years that prevented, you know, the, the sale of weapons, for example, to the Saudis was the potential for Saudi Arabia to to use these weapons or divert them to militant groups that were opposed to the Israeli state. But as of like the late 80s, early 90s, that the, those restrictions went away because basically the understanding was, well, there's never any probability of Saudi Arabia going to war with Israel because they accept their existence. And then you, you gradually saw these sort of quiet back channels being formed and you know, culminating where we see quite quite openly now, you know, the, the, in the, the use of, you know, the sale, obviously, of, of some Israeli technologies to governments or for ruling families like the Saudi ruling family and uh, for their use targeting um, people like Khashoggi. I mean, we refer to him as a dissident. I mean, he wasn't, we wouldn't consider him a, a radical by any means, you know, and the dissident in Saudi Arabia, you know, say, for example, the women who are a trial right now and have been in prison and tortured reportedly, uh, merely for agitating for the right to drive. You know, I mean, that's, that's a dissident in the eyes of, of the Saudi royal family and a dangerous one of that who needs to be, uh, silenced, you know, and, you know, I mean, it's, it's so implicitly obvious when, you know, you see, uh, Kushner, uh, the son-in-law of President Trump going to Saudi Arabia and he's an obvious, uh, friend of the Israeli state and it seems like he's an emissary almost going between the two. I find it all sort of an interesting, projection of power. Um, but you and I were talking and you pointed out that perhaps, correct me if I'm wrong, the biggest ex exposition and conference on uh, inter international uh, defense and military technologies takes place in the United Arab Emirates. Is that right? That's right. It took place sort of late February last month. Uh, it happens every two years. Um, and it's in Abu, the Abu Dhabi Emirates. To put it in perspective, you know, Canada has a globally renowned arms expo of its own every year called CANSEC. The Abu Dhabi expo called IDEX 
International Defense Exposition, uh, is 12 times the size in square, in square footage of the Canadian conference. Uh, you know, Canada sends like a, a little platoon of uh, trade commissioners to help the Canadian companies who are there at what the quote-unquote Canada Pavilion. And the Canada Pavilion is one of uh, over 30 different uh, country pavilions where, you know, yeah, you under which you house all the Canadian companies. So it's like a one-stop shop if you want to. If you're interested in what does Canada have to offer, what does China have to offer, the Saudis had a massive uh, booth. But uh, what was unspoken, they, they didn't mention the word Yemen once, which is you know an elephant in the room for for one of the one of the driving forces behind the sort of burgeoning defense uh, you know weapons uh, expenditures by the Middle Eastern countries. Uh, one of the the sort of the new and emerging sort of indigenous. Middle Eastern um, defense industries that are being developed. So Saudis have created their own, they're creating, trying to create their own defense industry, as is the United Emirates, as part of what they're calling their Vision 2030, the, the attempt to diversify away from a strict reliance on uh, natural resources. Uh, they're trying to develop uh, new industries, and the defense industry is uh, one logical one. So one of, the, one of the big things, one of the themes is like Canadians... We, you basically have to have a long haul vision when it comes to the Middle East. So it's like you know you're going to the you're going to this defense expo today, but you're picturing like a ten, a twenty, a thirty year relationship that you're trying to develop with your UAE or Qatar uh, or sorry, not Qatar. They, they probably are pretty much banned from this as well because of the the ongoing boycott against them. Um, but the Kuwaitis, uh, Omani, and so forth, Bahrainis. Um, and the idea is to enter joint ventures with these uh, these new newly created uh, Saudi and UAE um, defense industries, and so it's kind of this new thing. So it's like, okay, we're gonna set up a, a 50-50 joint venture with a with a Saudi or UAE counterpart and develop an industry inside their country rather than just simply like exporting products and technologies to them. They kind of it's like the the Western companies and countries now are are being looked upon to help nurture, sort of like hold their hands uh, as they develop their own defense industries. And just think of the implications of that, uh, that, you know, 20, 30 years from now, the, these, these Middle Eastern states are not only going to be um, still importing large quantities of weapons from their West, but they're also going to be producing and exporting their weapons abroad. And so uh, this, this uh, defense expo is sort of indicative of that. Um, this, the euphemism of defense is, has uh, been used so much that we're incorporating it ourselves, but it's clearly a lot of this is offensive military capabilities that they're uh, developing. But what what happens there? Are these deals that you're talking about, these collaborations being signed there, or, or what actually takes place during this International Defense Expo in Abu Dhabi? Yeah, that's kind of the idea is that, you know, like the big companies are like, you know, an air jet manufacturer will will bring their jets and armored vehicle would be basically crawling with like the newest and the latest and any product you can think of drones, armored vehicles, guns, missiles, you know, they'll all be literally on display. And then they'll have, um, they'll have like display sessions outside. So there'll be like bleachers set up and then like company after company will roll out all their products. Uh, so like the Canadian company, the street group, the, the armored vehicle company, you know, they'll have their own little, our block where they can, you know, just demonstrate how effective the, you know, tactically effective their, their weapons are. And, and the idea is, uh, this is, you're trying to land, you're trying to land a deal like any trade show, right? You go there to sign business, you go there and then you have these, uh, you know, widely broadcast, uh, uh, press releases, right? So every day they'd be like, yeah, $1.3 billion in new, new deals were signed between the UAE and this, this and that, uh, company. 
Um, and uh, some of, but some of the deals don't get announced, and some of them are announced very quietly, but others are, are quite public. And um, these, I think, what they do is, you know, the negotiations are ongoing for months, sometimes years, leading up to these expos, and they just wait, they wait to unveil the deals at the at the expo. It's almost like to justify, just to justify the expo itself. You need to you need to sign and announce these major deals because um, it's it's just good for good for the optics of the, of the the arms bazaar uh, and then justifies the next one happening two years two years from now. If you didn't sign any deals, you'd be like, well, why do why, why do we just do that? There's Andrew, there's one one critical article was written by uh, Andrew Smith from the uh, in the Guardian. He's a, he's a part, associated with the Coalition Against the Arm Trade in the UK and. It's simply described as a decadent and distasteful celebration of militarism and weaponry. And that's it. You know, almost 100,000 people attended. Um, there was 33 countries that had their own pavilions, but there's probably another 40 or more countries that participated. And, yeah, like, like you said, they send, they send government representatives. You know, the heads of the companies will go in large measure. Um, embassies will participate. And, uh, yeah, it's just, uh, it's just, uh, an, or- an orgy of militarism and the hand shaking and the backroom deals and everything that goes along with, you know, the corrupt, uh, deeply corrupt, uh, world of, of arms, of arms transfers and, and, and defense, quote unquote, defense deals. And, uh, you know, all this is happening with the continued war, destruction and famine in Yemen. Um, how much of what they're showing off there is going to be incorporated into the war in Yemen? Do you have a sense of that? Well, yeah. I mean, uh, actually, the one there was one other article written um, by John Gumbrell. He's kind of the, the Associated Press uh, correspondent. And his he had a good headline, basically. You know, against the backdrop, Abu Dhabi Arms Fair opens amid Yemen war criticism. Right? I mean, the UAE hasn't gotten a lot of attention as sort of the the number two belligerent behind and with the Saudi Arabia in Yemen. You know, they've been doing a lot of the grunt work on the ground, predominantly in the south. They've also been involved in the air campaign. I mean, we always assume that when an airstrike kills civilians, such as uh, just this week, another 20 civilians were killed uh, in in a coalition airstrike. It it could very well be UAE aircraft that are carrying out those airstrikes, or Kuwaiti, or Bahraini, or Egyptian for that matter. But really the focus has more or less been on the Saudi forces uh, running the show there. Um, to a lesser extent, of course, we also know that the U.S. Uh, is is deeply engaged in the war. Pulled back a little bit in terms of in the in the uh, wake of the Khashoggi uh, uh, assassination, uh, the, the the U.S. refueling jets that were there apparently have been pulled back, and they're having to refuel their own planes in midair. Uh, just yesterday, the U.S. Senate actually voted to remove all U.S. support for the war in Yemen. Uh, now, now we'll go to the House, but it's kind of a historic and unprecedented uh, vote. It was close, uh, divided along party lines. Um, but, um, but yeah, you had the UAE hosting this arms bazaar as they are embroiled uh, in this war. Uh, and, and, you know, a war without a win and an end in sight, despite... The best efforts of the UN uh, negotiators, Martin Griffiths, I believe, they had a brief period there. They've they've tried to hold a, a ceasefire in the right around the port of Hodeida, but um, this is ongoing. Uh, civilians continue to suffer. Famine looms, and uh, we're almost coming up on the f- uh, four year anniversary of the war. But I wanted to start where we, you know, go back to where we started talking about the United Arab Emirates because when you and I spoke before. 
we kind of discuss what is in this war for the Saudi regime. And it seemed like a lot of it was as much about projecting power and, you know, and dominance over a sort of Iranian influence. Even less clear to me, what is in this uh, participation in this war for the United Arab Emirates? Is it just to build their uh, military capabilities and project that power? I think it's, I think a lot, it's a, in large part about that, you know, thinking about uh, this notion of the little Sparta, which has become their nickname. Um, they, be, they become an increasingly sort of, they clearly have expeditionary aspirations, you know, they're involved with, you know, alongside Canadian special forces, for example, in Afghanistan, south of Afghanistan. Uh, they were involved uh, in the campaign uh, in Libya and they've been involved in Libya beyond that, you know, supplying, um, like weapons and attack aircraft to various factions there. Um, and clearly, uh, and then Syria as well, um, the air campaign there. Uh, and then uh, in the south in Yemen, you know, there, there's, there's talk uh, that, you know, they're more of a, there's more of a zone of influencing, like longer term, like they want to almost carve out South Yemen and, uh, have that as their sort of part within their zone of influence. Um, I would imagine even with some of the African countries that have been drawn into the war, the Emirates, you know, you think of the global sort of influence and presence of their, of their logistics and sh- uh, shipping uh, interests, you know, through DP world, you know, opening up ports in Somaliland and other parts of Africa, all over Canada, all over the world. There's a sort of, yeah, this sort of zone of influencing and, and the more that they can, um, project their power and their increasing uh, military capabilities, the more that bolsters their sort of global footprint and profile. And, and uh, a lot of it is uh, there's an economic aspect to it, obviously as well, you know, they're, they, you know, through companies like DP world and, and whatnot, they're, they're diversifying away from the natural resources. They, uh, they're known globally as a hub, you know, for shipping and logistics purposes to, to add a feather in their cap, they're they're trying to be known as a regional military power, and like, and who knows though what what truly they envision. Uh, there's a lot of infighting that goes on. Just this week, there was clashes between UAE-backed Yemeni forces in the south. But uh, yeah, I mean that's a gist of it. And of course, also the, this this alliance with Saudi Arabia, right? So sometimes you see arguments that oh no, there's fractures within Saudi UAE alliance, but clearly there's a relationship between. UAE's uh, Mohammed bin Zayed uh, MBZ and Saudi Arabia's MBS. The MBZ is said by many to be like a a whisperer to MBS. Who knows? Who knows how how influential he is, and if he's just kind of this is partly just uh, hitching their wagon to the bin Salman uh, flag and and uh, to, you know going with it as far as as far as it'll take them. And you touched on also the American role uh, in the war, but also the changing politics around that, particularly after the murder of uh, Jamal Khashoggi. And we saw the previous um, House delegation, I believe, passed a resolution against the war, which is now passed in the Senate, but because of that time has elapsed, it has to go back to the House and be voted on there again, correct? But it looks like it'll pass there. Yeah, I mean, that'll be interesting to see what exactly transpires if it does go through uh, the house i mean of course i would expect that trump would uh go with ill right Veto. unilaterally say no you know we're not uh we're not going to stop we're we're like we're critical to the saudi uae slash coalition effort but it's, it's certainly even if it ends up being a symbolic gesture it's 
it's important, uh, nonetheless, to see to see even in the U.S. all places, U.S. Senate and U.S. House, uh, to to vote against a war, a, a dirty and brutal war that the U.S. is embroiled in. Like I, I can't recall a time that that's ever happened. Sign of the times, you know. I don't. But even if you know, at, at this point in the war, even if the U.S. were to uh, sort of withdraw all material support, do you have a sense of? Um, how much that would change the facts on the ground? Would that uh, leverage enough to, to create an opportunity for um, a lasting peace? Uh, conceivably, like if it, if it were accompanied, see, I don't, I haven't seen any explicit mention of this, but like if it were accompanied by an embargo, like like because you know the presence of the U.S. in inside Saudi Arabia, for example, the the number of U.S arms manufacturing companies that have like a physical presence that or or that, that have contracts to work not just like specifically to the war in Yemen but like contracts to 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 train and develop certain branches of the the entire Saudi security apparatus whether they be private companies or actual like US forces who are doing this like if 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 there were to be a wholesale withdrawal in that respect, you know, okay, we're going to cancel weapons deals. We're going to pull out any assets we have that are supporting the war. I think that would have a, could have in turn a dramatic impact on forcing the, the Saudis to negotiate a, some sort of withdrawal from, from the conflict altogether. Right. And in turn, if that, if the, the UK took the cue, because they're also playing key advisory roles and they also have companies uh, that work closely with their Saudi and UAE counterparts who are critical, I'd say, in many ways to the sort of the day-to-day operations even of the, of the entire military apparatus because these are not sophisticated uh, organizations. They, re- they, they rely on U.S., U.K., Western capabilities, um, systems, and so forth. And they would be toothless, you know, if they were to, uh, to push it further and, and have a wholesale sort of withdrawal drawing back of but again like the the idea you know we've seen how staunchly uh, supportive trump is of these weapons deals he's like i'm not obviously in the case of khashoggi right he's like we're not going to jeopardize those arms contracts i don't care if they killed 10 journalists in 10 consulates you know i mean we're not going to cancel arms deals right so like it's going to be very limited and so i think that uh i would imagine that the they would be able to continue the war unhindered uh even if this did proceed but you know that remains to be seen and is is there a chance this war continues into 2020 and if there's a new president that some of the steps you're talking about uh could be politically feasible yeah if if you imagine like you know bernie sanders who who kind of led was one of the senators who was leading this resolution to withdraw from yemen you know if if he uh enacted his what his stated principles are that those are the very sorts of measures I, I could see and as unprecedented as these votes have been to see someone proceed and say yeah no more arms deals you know sorry we're gonna we're gonna divert you know we're gonna we're gonna uh you're gonna have to find other customers or we're gonna have to scale down your operations or we're gonna have to create new create new jobs out of the ones we're gonna lose here what have you similar to the debates we're having here right about the the, the big arms deal that's still uh, in motion, just yesterday, a Saudi cargo ship came and picked up some light armor vehicles to deliver, and uh, may end up being in Yemen. The longer this the war drags on, the more likely that uh, will be the case. And um, but if yeah, I, 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 yes, I do see the possibility of it dragging on to 2020. And like I said, there's no end in sight. Uh, but 
if the pressures keep building, the momentum from the Khashoggi assassination, as kind of ridiculous as it was on the one hand, that this one instance, like, you could, you, they could kill hundreds of people in an airstrike, and it didn't, it didn't stir the reaction as the killing of this one journalist did. Um, but nevertheless, you know, if you know the, the momentum of that seems to be waning, you see the public relations firms signing back on with Saudi Arabia. You see the companies, uh, you know, more than willing now to go participate in Saudi conferences. You know, remember in October, right after the murder, there was that big conference in Saudi Arabia, and all the companies were like, "Oh no, we're going to cancel our participation in this because you know it's still the wound is still fresh." But now people are gradually. Uh, you know, getting back into bed with Saudi Arabia more and more openly, and the window seems to be closing in terms of the momentum that that had for, uh, you know, these kind of unprecedented shifts in, like, refusing to align with Saudi Arabia that is so brutally repressing its own people and then so brutally prosecuting this uh, inhumane war in Yemen. Uh, anything else that you think is worth pointing out, the relevance of, of this kind of military-industrial uh, conference in Abu Dhabi with what's going on in the world beyond that? I think there's a, well, there was one other piece, a really interesting one by Jenna, Jenna McLaughlin on the booming market for spy technology. Uh, we've referred to that a little bit earlier, um, but she kind of did sort of a deep dive in the context of this IDEX, and she was at IDEX in Abu Dhabi. Um, but there was a there's a there's a company that she mentioned that was there branded uh, Intellexa and sold by Weispear, a company founded by a former military intelligence official. But I think she goes on to later mention that they wouldn't they weren't openly identifying themselves as Israeli. Um, but yeah, that's kind of how it works, right? So apparently, you know, Israel, along with a number of other companies in the U.S. and Canada. Um, and then even in the UAE, she mentions the company Dark Matter. Um, they're, uh, they're just specializing in this, this spy technology, right? Like technology to help monitor and control the flow of information in, in, in societies in a way, in ways that wouldn't be considered legal here, especially in the wake of this Edward Snowden. Uh, they refer to the Middle East as the Wild West uh, in this article. They quote, um, with respect to, um, they call this digitally enabled authoritarianism. You know, so I think that's a theme that was picked up on that it's one to keep an eye on, right? So the, the ramifications inside, you know, to keep down any kind of Arab Spring 2.0, uh, but also abroad, as we saw in the case of Khashoggi and this Canadian uh, dissident, Omar Abdulaziz. These, uh, these, this is the wave of the future, unfortunately, as it appears. And, um, that's that's what everyone's doing in Abu Dhabi, trying to get a piece of the action, right? So the pie, even just just this week, the Stockholm Institute for uh, Peace Peace Research released another study that shows uh, yet another increase in overall sales to the Middle East, and you know Canada, the U.S., the U.K., all the major suppliers, uh, their number one customer is Saudi Arabia, and uh, and the UAE is not far behind. And so it's just like the bottom line is there needs to be social movements inside of the Western countries that are put, trying to put the brakes on these, these industries and the, 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 you know, the endless war that we're helping to perpetuate and then uh, to help free up the, the what, whatever sort of progressive movements inside these Middle Eastern countries that are you know, increasingly getting uh, stuck under the boot of this, uh, this kind of uh, GCC authoritarianism. Um, it fascinates me, and but I'm always just uh, 
keep my eye out for the next ones because you know the smaller ones are always taking place. Bahrain's got their iteration of it. Saudis have theirs, um, and uh, they're always uh, there's always some going to kind of uh, you know Canadian presence that I track, and of course always the big players, the big U.S. players are always there. And but uh, but I, at the same time, looking forward to a world where there are there are no arms bazaars and trying to figure out ways uh, to get to that world. Well, Anthony, I appreciate you taking the time to uh, talk. Uh, take care. Thanks, Dan, for having me on. Welcome back to the Knife at the Gunfight. I'm here with Latrice Gant, one of the founding members of the Baltimore Ceasefire Movement. Latrice, how are you doing? I am doing great. Thank you for um, having me today, Simon. Oh, well, it's my pleasure to have you. And, uh, you know, I am a, an, an ambassador of the Baltimore Ceasefire Movement. Uh, so I wanted to invite you on the show and tell us what is the Baltimore Ceasefire Movement about? Yeah, thank you for, uh, for showing up for Baltimore City the way that you do. So I, we really appreciate you. Um, even though you're not in Baltimore City right now, you still put in the work for the city, and we appreciate that. Um, so the Baltimore ceasefire, um, one of the things that I try to stress to people is that we are not a formal organization. So the Baltimore ceasefire is a movement. We are at the core um, six people who really love Baltimore City and who want to do what we can. Um, to either inspire people and or encourage people to do what they can to help to bring down the murder rate and to increase peace in the culture of Baltimore City. Um, so that's who we are. Um, the founders of Baltimore Ceasefire are Erica Bridgeford and Ogun, um, Michelle Shellers, Jakia Jason, Darnell Wharton, and I um, are the other six, other four co-organizers and then we have 13 adult ambassadors and I believe either 13 or 16 youth ambassadors who are official members of the the ceasefire movement team. Tell us what is the Baltimore ceasefire movement about and what does it mean to you? Um, I love Baltimore City first and foremost. I was born here. I was raised here. Um, I've never lived anywhere else. I've lived all across the city, and it it made me who I am. Um, it gave me a lot of my boldness. It gave me a lot of my grit. It gave me um, the the little bit of grace <laughs> that I do have. It gave that to me as well. And I watched over the years on the sidelines. Um, I watched my city become just like torn up from the roots kind of place. And being a teen and a 20-something-year-old black girl growing up in Baltimore City, I didn't know what was going on with Baltimore. I thought it was something that we were doing to our city and to ourselves. And now as a 45-year-old woman, I know and I understand that what has happened to Baltimore 
has been both strategic and intentional and has been essentially a breeding ground for violence and murder in our city. And I want to do something to stop that and to remind the people in Baltimore City that we can be both tough and loving at the exact same time. We don't have to choose between being tough and being um, caring towards one another. I want to remind people about their humanity and especially black people living in Baltimore City. Um, I feel like we are representative of the overall mood for black people living in America. And there's this idea that our individual persons and our the collective body of who we are, that there is no inherent value in us. And I know that to be a lie. Um, I know that to be false. I know that to be intentional messaging that has been poured into and on people living here. And I've charged myself with uncovering us from that and reminding us that we are important, not because we are important in relation to any one person or any one thing. We are just important by virtue of the fact that we exist and that participating in the degradation and dehumanization of black bodies in Baltimore City is not something that, that, that we should be running towards. Um, it's something that we should be aware of. It's something that we should know in our hearts, and it's something that we should fight against every day of our lives. And I appreciate everything that you're saying, and I think maybe it's worth saying how I came uh, to be working with you at Baltimore Ceasefire. And I think everyone that is active, it comes from uh, a place of love for the city. And mm-hmm. uh, and I would say the same way that you love your family, you know what I mean? You can yep. disagree with your family, and you can stand up to them, and, and uh, out of that love really uh, demand uh, that they hold themselves up to a higher standard. But I also think that Understanding uh, Baltimore is is really about understanding a, a lot of forces in America, but especially race in America. And being yeah. a, pre- a predominantly black city, it's gone through uh, a profound process of divestment. Mm-hmm. And you know, when, when Erica Br- uh, Bridgeford did her TED talk, she dressed up in makeup that was inspired by uh, Black Panther. And I see her as an Afrofuturistic superhero. Yeah, because that's that's what it means to me, I think, is to embrace the city, is to imagine a future that is not centered on D.C., it's not centered on New York, it's not centered on whiteness. It it uh, appreciates the history of the city and embraces it. And I'm, I'm going to mess it up right now, but my, my father is a, reli- a religious person, and he, uh, I'm going to mess up the prophet, but he makes this, this great comparison between you know, Noah, God told Noah to put two of each animal on the ark to save him from the flood. He was like, oh, okay, I'm going to put, you know, I'm going to get the animals and put them on the boat and that's it. Um, and I forget which prophet I want to say. Abraham. Uh, you know, God wanted to destroy a city because of all the sinners. And this prophet was like, well, hold on. You know, what if it's a thousand good people there? Are you going to kill them just because of all the sinners? He said, well, no, I wouldn't kill a thousand. And he negotiates God down to ten. Wow. And that's kind of... And that's kind of the basis for, um, at least in Judaism, what makes a community 
of of prayer is ten people. I mean, wow. And I that's what I see the power of ceasefire is kind of negotiating with this really uh, intense situation in the city where homicide is out of control and it feels like you know almost uh divine will at times that we don't have control over it and we say hold on are we going to throw everything away because of all the pain and all the frustration and all of this uh, history of divestment are we going to recognize the culture and the greatness in this city and embrace that that is a beautiful analogy but since i have you on air i wanted to uh to talk about um you know, some of the work that you've been doing in ceasefire. And to me, I think two of the main parts have been the ceasefire weekends in which, uh, calling for, you know, a weekend free of violence and free of killing. And can you talk a little bit about what those weekends have been like? Absolutely. So this idea that we would give ourselves and we would agree that we would have 72 hours with no murder in Baltimore City. To some people, that feels like that's not enough. And I get it, because 72 hours is, when you really think about it, it's not a long time. Um, but at the time that we, when we called a ceasefire, somebody was being murdered in Baltimore City on average once every 19 hours. So that's three lives. Um, that could potentially be saved if we as a city collectively decided that we were going to avoid murder and at the exact same time celebrate life. So in our minds, ceasefire weekends look like sacred holiday weekends where people in Baltimore have access to resources that they need, where people in Baltimore plan block parties, where the air in our city feels different because our collective consciousness is directed towards peace. And we do it four times a year for right now um, because it takes about three months to get everybody kind of on board with this idea that a ceasefire weekend is approaching. Um, In between ceasefire weekends, we have public meetings where we talk to people in um, all of the areas of Baltimore City about what ceasefire is uh, and listen to people. Uh, because I think that's the thing that gets missed the most because people think that we just show up <laughs> every three months and tell people not to kill people. And they don't see that we are in, we're actually in the community doing outreach and talking to people and having conversation and listening to people. Um, and if we're able to point them in the direction of a resource that they need, then we do that. So there's a lot of invisibility in Baltimore. There's 600,000 people who live in the city. And Baltimore is one of those places where it you can leave out of your house at 730 in the morning and be outside all day long and not have someone speak to you. That level of invisibility and what that does to people, we want to help to remove that. So, like, when we have ceasefire weekends, we make sure that there is some pep in our step and teeth showing when we smile at people and tell them happy ceasefire weekend. And how that startles people because they're not used to people acknowledging them. People in the community are empowered to do something so people have created all kinds of events 
that have happened during ceasefire weekends. People are, and you get to see like the intelligence and the wisdom and the creativity that lives in Baltimore that's hidden under all of the muck. And so it's a celebration of life. It's a reminder to be more peaceful, that we all can stand to be a little bit more peaceful and um, a challenge to see if we as a city can step up to the plate and do this thing that we said that, that, that we want, and that's for nobody to be killed. So that's the essence of Ceasefire Weekends. And obviously, if uh, someone is killed during a ceasefire weekend, that doesn't mean that it's a failure. Right. But uh, there have been weekends, I think, February a year ago, there was uh, the weekend, the ceasefire weekend started on uncharacteristic period of no murder in the city that I think got to 11 or 12 days. It was 11 and a half days, yep. And I remember people were talking about it, and even the New York Times had a reporter interviewing people on the corner, and they were kind of just talking about it. it. It had become a presence in people's mind. And, you know, what there was a, a murder that ended that. That kind of brings me to the next part of, of what I thought was really valuable about ceasefire, um, in that uh, these sacred space rituals where people go wherever someone has been killed to show up, invite family, invite community, yes. and be present, say the name of the person who was killed, say a prayer. And uh, do you want to speak a little bit more about why you and, and Erica and others have started doing that and what you think the value of that is? Absolutely. So leading up to the August 2017 ceasefire, um, we recognize that even though we put out this request, to the city that people, some people may not have known about it, and some people may have made a decision not to honor the request. So we had to think deeply about what it would look like if somebody lost their life during a ceasefire and what we would want to happen um, in the city, in our communities, and specifically with their family. And so the very first sacred space ritual happened during the August ceasefire when Lamontre was killed, but we didn't know that that's what it was at the time. So we made a decision that if anything happens to anybody specifically during the ceasefire weekend, that we're going to show up to that space, hold space for that person who lost their life, and pray over that space and pour our individual and collective love and light into the space where that person met their creator. After the August ceasefire, I think leading up to the November ceasefire, there was like this rumbling in Erica's spirit about like, well, you know, it's, we can't continue to be numb and ignore the fact that people are losing their lives. Like we're not saying their name. We're not honoring their light. Like what, what should this look like and how can, how can we support people? Because all Baltimore lives matter. So how can we support them? And that's how the sacred space ritual kind of manifested and crystallized. So it was whenever somebody gets murdered in Baltimore City, regardless of who that person is, we show up, either the three of us, Erica, Bridget, and I, or a whole community of people, and we show up in that space and we pour our love and our light into that space for that person and say their name remember that their light matters, honor the fact that they are no longer here with us physically and connect with them and ask them to, to walk with us and to remind us about why we do this work because it gets really, really hard when 
we lose three or four people in one day. I can't even express how that just like wears on my heart and my soul and it feeds into the hopelessness and desperation. So like that's at the end, I think that's the part of it that's the most frustrating for me because people don't know about all of the wonderful and miraculous things that people are doing in Baltimore city to help to save lives. They don't know about those things and that's not their fault, but reminding people that there are people who show up for you and you don't even know it. There are people who live in this, live in this city and do things for you and they don't even know you. And the sacred space ritual is our gift to Baltimore city to help to remind people that we really like, I don't have to know you to love you and I don't have to know you to show up for you. You know, and you talked about the idea of invisibility. And I think that what I realized once I started going to the sacred space rituals is that, you know, these people were dying in the city with no obituary and nobody uh, knew their name or really, you know, seemed to care that they had passed. And I always kind of thought from that, that if you uh, give people a message from when they're young to when they grow up that they don't matter some people are going to internalize that and treat themselves and others like they don't matter absolutely and uh so i always thought that that was some of the power of of confronting that um uh, in that space and one of the other things that i wanted to say you know this is a show uh about the middle east and the ceasefire concept actually comes from uh ogun was telling me that he noticed that, you know, when there was a ceasefire called in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, he would pay attention if someone, if there was violence and someone got hurt or killed. And he thought, you know, nobody's paying attention when, when people get killed in Baltimore. Mm -hmm. We need to call a ceasefire. So at the mm -hmm. very least, somebody notices, uh, that this violence is flaring up and maybe that will, you know, give an impetus to, to stop the violence. You know, I don't know what you or Erica or anybody thought was going to happen in, in those spaces and um but being being present in the spaces where someone was killed you know with the mother or the family or the community of the person who was killed you know in a lot of these blocks it's like you know i've said it's like standing in the ruins of a great american city yes the hollowed out buildings and broken glass and you know sometimes there's a crew still working the corner Sometimes that crew is interested in, and asks questions and wants to be cleansed with the sage smoke. Mm -hmm. And some, sometimes you get the feeling that, that, uh, that they don't miss the person who was killed and, the, and they don't appreciate us being there. Right. A lot of power in that space. And, um, you know, I've always thought that it should be like, you know, instead of three or ten or sometimes it's dozens of people, but it, if it was 10,000 people that showed up every time somebody got killed, Right. You know, I feel like that they they wouldn't be showing up every day because it would happen a lot less if there was that much will to. So that's why I make a point of showing up, and I it's asking a lot, I think, to ask people to show up. Uh, it's stepping out of your comfort zone. Right. But I think it, it's an important thing to do, and I'd invite people that are interested to reach out to ceasefire and be present. I think that um, people. So this idea of numbness. I'm just going to, you know, stick my head in the sand cause, because what's happening around me is overwhelming and I don't want to be confronted by it. I don't want to have to deal with it. I don't want, you know, if I, if I keep my blinders on, it won't happen to me. I understand that. I also understand how devastating it is 
when it does happen to you. And all of the feelings and all of the everything that come with that, the guilt of, well, maybe I should have done something. Maybe I should have been doing something. The anger of, well, how come nobody is doing anything? Then I get it because if five years ago I was them. So, like, I understand being in your own bubble and, like, Baltimore, people liking it sometimes to a war zone. And I, and I get that. And I also say to people that we're not used to being the ones who save us. So there's this expectation that somebody else is going to do it, the mayor is going to do it, the police are going to do it, where, in my mind, the mayor is a person and the police are people and community activists are people. And so this idea that people are going to save you, you are people. There is no them. It's, it really is just us. And the more people who can get involved, the better. And a young man who was brutally murdered in New York, and there was um, a picture of the candlelight vigil that they did for him. And it looked like there was thousands of candles outside. And just the impact of that message that his life mattered and that people were going to show up for him. And I'm pretty sure that everybody who showed up for him didn't know him. And it reminds me of just how, um, how fragile our community is how fragile our self-worth is and how we really have not learned to value ourselves and one another in a way where we even think that our presence matters. So people think, oh, well, it's a sacred space ritual. You know, I probably should be religious. If I'm not religious, I probably shouldn't show up. Or, you know, I don't even believe in God. So why would I show up for something like that when none of that is necessary? You're just showing up with yourself to show support. And imagine, like you said, what happens if every time somebody in Baltimore is murdered, and it doesn't even have to be 10,000, if 500 people show up, like just that, that, that energy connection in that space for people who believe that that person matters, and that I matter, and that we matter. And uh, so the, the next uh, ceasefire weekend is going to be uh, the uh, weekend of Mother's Day, right, in May? Yeah. So all of the other ceasefire weekends happen the first weekend of the month, um, February, August, and November. First 72-hour weekend that month, it starts at 12.01 a.m. on Friday. And the ceasefire doesn't end until... 11.59 p.m. that Sunday, regardless of what happens during that time. Um, we decided when we looked at the calendar to move ceasefire weekend from the first weekend in May to Mother's Day weekend in Baltimore City. Like, Mother's Day weekend is the best weekend in May to avoid murder because it just devastates families. And so um, if you're a person who is, um, prone to violence, <laughs> your gift to Baltimore City can be just to stay in that weekend. Like, yeah, so, like, it doesn't have to be something monumental, but every effort is monumental. And uh, how can people uh, who are interested to find out more 
or to find out when these sacred space rituals are happening, uh, connect with the Baltimore ceasefire movement? Yep. So um, anything that you could possibly want to know about the history of ceasefire, how to get involved, and how to support is on our website, baltimoreceasefire.com. We have a calendar link on our website to find out where we're going to be, um, the the events that we're going to support, the sacred space rituals when they get scheduled. You don't need our permission to show up. Just show up. We have links to our apparel if you want to support the movement by buying a T-shirt or a hoodie. And Erica's TED Talk, that the, the one of the most inspiring <laughs> TED Talks ever, is also on the front page of our website. If it's one thing that I could impress upon people for Baltimore Seasire, for the movement, it is that you don't have to be a superhero to participate in Baltimore Seasire. You can do what you've been doing to help to cure whatever it is that's going on in Baltimore City. You can do that, just amplify it a little bit and and do what you can to increase your own personal visibility or the visibility of your movement or whatever it is that you're doing. Um, We are on social media. Uh, We have a Facebook page, um, Baltimore Seasire. We have a group on Facebook. I think it's Baltimore Seasire 365 Community Connect where we share resources and information. Uh, we are on Twitter. I think it's Demore Ceasefire on Twitter. And our Instagram page is a good page to go to get information. And that's Baltimore Ceasefire as well. Uh, I want to say I appreciated uh, the, the sort of the launch of the Ceasefire movement happened right as I was moving back to Baltimore to uh, train in surgical critical care and trauma. And I was looking, I was looking for how to connect outside of the hospital with the community. And I heard, uh, I don't remember which one of you guys was on uh, Morgan State Radio, and I pulled over immediately and called the station, but it was a rerun, and so nobody was in the station, but I was able to find you guys on Facebook, so those links do work. Um, and f- for people who are not uh, necessarily connected to Baltimore, if you're in D.C. or other parts of Maryland, uh, definitely feel free to reach out. Erica Bridgeford has been active in Hagerstown and other parts of Maryland, and this is a movement that's, you know, not confined by municipal boundaries. So you're always welcome. That's right. That's right. We welcome everybody, anybody who it believes in their own personal power to affect change in community and in people. Um, we welcome you. I I think I probably have, <laughs> I probably have a more arrogant attitude towards them. Cause like, I just, I just know that there will be a day in Baltimore city where this is not an issue for us. I know it. I'm completely confident about it. I'm not sure how, how, you know, how much time is going to pass between now and when that actually happens. But I, but I know that it's going to happen. Um, and not because of ceasefire, but just because of what I know that Baltimore can be. I really believe in my city. Well, Latrice, I appreciate that the work that you do, and I appreciate you taking the time to be on the air with us. Thanks again for joining us on Shywood on our radio. The music you heard today was Comte Hora by M.O. Mathluthi uh, from Tunisia. We're working to get her on the show. I'm Simon Fitzgerald, the knife at the gunfight.
نحكم بالمصير نحنا من نسيم من طير ومنرتد على